Chapter Seven of the Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar by Maurice Leblanc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, Madame Ambert's Safe. At three o'clock in the morning, there were still half a dozen carriages in front of one of those small houses, which form only the side of the Boulevard Berthier. The door of that house opened, and a number of guests, male and female, emerged. The majority of them entered their carriages, and were quickly driven away, leaving behind only two men who walked down Courcelles, where they parted, as one of them lived in that street. The other decided to return on foot as far as the Porte Maillot. It was a beautiful winter's night, clear and cold, a night on which a brisk walk is agreeable and refreshing. But... At the end of a few minutes, he had the disagreeable impression that he was being followed. Turning around, he saw a man sulking amongst the trees. He was not a coward, yet he felt it advisable to increase his speed. Then his pursuer commenced to run, and he deemed it prudent to draw his revolver and face him. But he had no time. The man rushed at him and attacked him violently. Immediately they were engaged in a desperate struggle, wherein he felt that his unknown assailant had the advantage. He called for help, struggled, and was thrown down in a pile of gravel, seized by the throat, and gagged with a handkerchief that his assailant forced into his mouth. His eyes closed, and the man who was smothering him with his weight arose to defend himself against an unexpected attack. A blow from a cane and a kick from a boot. The men uttered two cries of pain and fled, limping and cursing. Without deigning to pursue the fugitive, the new arrival stooped over the prostrate man and inquired, Are you hurt, monsieur? He was not injured, but he was dazed and unable to stand. His rescued procured a carriage, placed him in it, and accompanied him to his house on the Avenue de la Grande Armée. On his arrival there, quite recovered, he overwhelmed his saviour with thanks. "'I owe you my life, monsieur, and I shall not forget it. I do not wish to alarm my wife at this time of night, but to-morrow she will be pleased to thank you personally. Come and breakfast with us. My name is Ludovic Ambert. May I ask yours?' "'Certainly, monsieur.' And he handed monsieur Ambert a card bearing the name Arsène Lupin. At that time, Arsène Lupin did not enjoy the celebrity which the Cahorn affair, his escape from the prison de la Santé, and other brilliant exploits afterwards gained for him. He had not even used the name of Arsène Lupin. The name was specially invented to designate the rescuer of Monsieur Ambert. That is to say, it was in that affair that Arsène Lupin was baptized. Fully armed and ready for the fray, it is true, but lacking the resources and authority which command success. Arsène Lupin was then merely an apprentice in a profession wherein he soon became a master. With what a thrill of joy he recalled the invitation he received that night. At last he had reached his goal. At last he had undertaken a task worthy of his strength and skill. The Umber millions! What a magnificent feast for an appetite like his! 
he prepared a special toilette for the occasion. A shabby frock-coat, baggy trousers, a frayed silk hat, well-worn collar and cuffs, all quite correct in form, but bearing the unmistakable stamp of poverty. His cravat was a black ribbon pinned with a false diamond. Thus accoutred, he descended the stairs of the house in which he lived at Montmartre. At the third floor, without stooping, he rapped on a closed door with the head of his cane. He walked to the exterior boulevard. A tram-car was passing. He boarded it, and someone who had been following him took a seat beside him. It was the lodger who occupied the room on the third floor. A moment later, this man said to Lupin, "'Well, Governor, well, it is all fixed. How? I'm going there to breakfast.' "'You? Breakfast there?' Certainly, why not? I rescued Monsieur Ludovic Ambert from certain death at your hands. Monsieur Ambert is not devoid of gratitude. He invited me to breakfast. There was a brief silence. Then the other said, But you're not going to throw up the scheme. My dear boy, said Lupin, when I arranged that little case of assault and battery, when I took the trouble at three o'clock in the morning, to wrap you with my cane and tap you with my boot, at the risk of injuring my only friend, it was not my intention to forgo the advantages to be gained from a rescue so well arranged and executed. Oh, no, not at all. But the strange rumors we hear about their fortune. Never mind about that. For six months I have worked on this affair, investigated it, studied it, questioned the servants, the money-lenders, and men of straw. For six months I have shadowed the husband and wife. Consequently, I know what I'm talking about. Whether the fortune came to them from old Brawford, as they pretend, or from some other source, I do not care. I know that it is a reality, that it exists. And some day it will be mine. One hundred millions. Let us say ten or even five. That is enough. They have a safe full of bonds and they will be the devil to pay if I can get my hands on them. The tram-car stopped at the Place de l'Etoile. The man whispered to Lupin, What am I to do now? Nothing at present. You will hear from me. There is no hurry. Five minutes later, Arsène Lupin was ascending the magnificent flight of stairs in the Humbert mansion, and Monsieur Humbert introduced him to his wife. Madame Gervaise Humbert was a short, plump woman, and very talkative. She gave Lupin a cordial welcome. I desired that we should be alone to entertain our saviour, she said. From the outset, they treated our saviour as an old and valued friend. By the time dessert was served, their friendship was well cemented, and private confidences were being exchanged. Arsène related the story of his life, the life of his father as a magistrate, the sorrows of his childhood, and his present difficulties. Gervaise, in turn, spoke of her youth, her marriage, the kindness of the aged Brawford, the hundred millions that she had inherited, the obstacles that prevented her from obtaining the enjoyment of her inheritance, the monies she had been obliged to borrow, and an exorbitant rate of interest, her endless contentions with Brawford's nephews, and the litigation, the injunctions, in fact, everything. "'Just think of it, Monsieur Lupin. The bones are there, in my husband's office.' And if we detach a single coupon 
we lose everything. They are there, in our safe, and we dare not touch them. Monsieur Lupin shivered at the bare idea of his proximity to so much wealth. Yet he felt quite certain that Monsieur Lupin would never suffer from the same difficulty as his fair hostess, who declared she dare not touch the money. Ah, they are there, he repeated to himself. They are there. A friendship formed under such circumstances soon led to closer relations. When discreetly questioned, Arsène Lupin confessed his poverty and distress. Immediately, the unfortunate young man was appointed private secretary to the Ambert, husband and wife, at a salary of one hundred francs a month. He was to come to the house every day and receive orders for his work, and a room on the second floor was set apart as his office. This room was directly over Monsieur Humbert's office. Arsène soon realized that his position as secretary was essentially a sinecure. During the first two months, he had only four important letters to recopy, and was called only once to Monsieur Humbert's office. Consequently, he had only one opportunity to contemplate officially the Humbert safe. Moreover, he noticed that the secretary was not invited to the social functions of the employer. But he did not complain, as he preferred to remain modestly in the shade, and maintain his peace and freedom. However, he was not wasting any time. From the beginning, he made clandestine visits to Monsieur Humbert's office, and paid his respects to the safe, which was hermetically closed. It was an immense block of iron and steel, cold and stern in appearance, which could not be forced open by the ordinary tools of the burglar's trade. But Arsène Lupin was not discouraged. Where force fails, cunning prevails, he said to himself. The essential thing is to be on the spot when the opportunity occurs. In the meantime, I must watch and wait. He made immediately some preliminary preparations. After careful soundings made upon the floor of his room, he introduced a lead pipe, which penetrated the ceiling of Monsieur Humbert's office, at a point between the two screeds of the cornice. By means of this pipe, he hoped to see and hear what transpired in the room below. Henceforth, he passed his days stretched at full length upon the floor. He frequently saw the Humberts holding a consultation in front of the safe, investigating books and papers. When they turned the combination lock, he tried to learn the figures and the numbers of turns they made to the right and left. He watched their movements. He sought to catch their words. There was also a key necessary to complete the opening of the safe. What did they do with it? Did they hide it? One day he saw them leave the room without locking the safe. He descended the stairs quickly and boldly entered the room, but they had returned. Oh, excuse me, he said. I made a mistake in the door. Come in, Monsieur Lupin, come in, cried Madame Humbert. Are you not at home here? We want your advice. What bonds should we sell? The foreign securities or the government annuities? But the injunction? said Lupin with surprise. Oh, it doesn't cover all the bonds. She opened the door of the safe and withdrew a package of bonds. But her husband protested. No, no, Gervaise, it would be foolish to sell the foreign bonds. They're going up, whilst the annuities are as high as they ever will be. What do you think, my dear friend? 
the dear friend had no opinion, yet he advised the sacrifice of the annuities. Then she withdrew another package, and from it she took a paper at random. It proved to be a three percent annuity worth two thousand francs. Placed the package of bonds in his pocket. That afternoon, accompanied by his secretary, he sold the annuities to a stockbroker, and realized forty-six thousand francs. Whatever Madame Ambert might have said about it, Arsène Dupin did not feel at home in the Ambert house. On the contrary, his position there was a peculiar one. He learned that the servants did not even know his name. They called him Monsieur. Ludovic always spoke of him in the same way. You will tell Monsieur. Has Monsieur arrived? Why that mysterious appellation? Moreover, after their first outburst of enthusiasm, the Ambert seldom spoke to him. And although treating him with the consideration due to a benefactor, they gave him little or no attention. They appeared to regard him as an eccentric character, who did not like to be disturbed, and they respected his isolation as if it were a stringent rule on his part. On one occasion, while passing through the vestibule, he heard Madame Ambert say to the two gentlemen, "'He's such a barbarian!' "'Very well,' he said to himself, "'I am a barbarian.' And without seeking to solve the question of their strange conduct, he proceeded with the execution of his own plans. He had decided that he could not depend on chance, nor on the negligence of Madame Ambert, who carried the key of the safe, and who, unlocking the safe, invariably scattered the letters forming the combination of the lock. Consequently, he must act for himself. Finally, an incident precipitated matters. It was the vehement campaign instituted against the Ambert by certain newspapers that accused the Ambert of swindling. Arsène Lupin was present at certain family conferences when this new vicissitude was discussed. He decided that if he waited much longer, he would lose everything. During the next five days, instead of leaving the house about six o'clock, according to his usual habit, he locked himself in his room. It was supposed that he had gone out, but he was lying on the floor, surveying the office of Monsieur Ambert. During those five evenings, the favorable opportunity that he awaited did not take place. He left the house about midnight, by a side door to which he held the key. But on the sixth day, he learned that the Ambert, actuated by the malevolent insinuations of their enemies, proposed to make an inventory of the contents of the safe. They will do it tonight, thought Lupin. And truly, after dinner, Ambert and his wife retired to the office and commenced to examine the books of account and the securities contained in the safe. Thus, one hour after another passed away. He heard the servants go upstairs to their rooms. No one now remained on the first floor. Midnight. The Amberts were still at work. I must get to work, murmured Lupin. He opened his window. It opened on a court. Outside, everything was dark and quiet. He took from his desk a knotted rope, fastened it to the balcony in front of his window, and quietly descended as far as the window below, which was that of the Amberts office. He stood upon the balcony for a moment, motionless, with attentive ear and watchful eye, but the heavy curtains effectually concealed the interior of the room. He cautiously pushed on the double window. 
if no one had examined it, it ought to yield to the slightest pressure, for during the afternoon he had so fixed the bolt that it would not enter the stable. The window yielded to his touch. Then, with infinite care, he pushed it open sufficiently to admit his head. He parted the curtains a few inches, looked in, and saw Monsieur Humbert and his wife sitting in front of the safe, deeply absorbed in their work, and speaking softly to each other at rare intervals. He calculated the distance between him and them, considered the exact movements he would require to make in order to overcome them, one after the other, before they could call for help, and he was about to rush upon them when Madame Humbert said, Oh, the room is getting quite cold. I'm going to bed. And you, my dear? I shall stay and finish. Finish? Why, that will take you all night. Not at all. An hour at the most. She retired. Twenty minutes. Thirty minutes passed. Arsène pushed the window a little farther open. The curtains shook. He pushed once more. Monsieur Humbert turned, and seeing the curtains blown by the wind, he rose to close the window. There was not a cry, not the trace of a struggle. With a few precise moments, and without causing him the least injury, Arsène stunned him, wrapped the curtain about his head, bound him hand and foot, and did it all in such a manner that Monsieur Humbert had no opportunity to recognize his assailant. Quickly he approached the safe, seized two packages that he placed under his arm, left the office, and opened the servant's gate. A carriage was stationed in the street. "'Take that first, and follow me,' he said to the coachman. He returned to the office, and in two trips they emptied the safe. Then Arsene went to his own room, removed the rope and all other traces of his clandestine work. A few hours later, Arsène Lupin and his assistant examined the stolen goods. Lupin was not disappointed, as he had foreseen that the wealth of the Amberts had been greatly exaggerated. It did not consist of hundreds of millions, nor even tens of millions. Yet it amounted to a very respectable sum, and Lupin expressed his satisfaction. "'Of course,' he said, "'there will be a considerable loss when we come to sell the bonds.' as we will have to dispose of them surreptitiously at reduced prices. In the meantime, they will rest quietly in my desk, awaiting a propitious moment. Arsène saw no reason why he should not go to the Ambert house the next day, but a perusal of the morning papers revealed this startling fact. Ludovic and Gervaise Ambert had disappeared when the officers of the law seized the safe and opened it. They found there what Arsène Dupin had left nothing. Such are the facts, and I learned the sequel to them one day, when Arsène Lupin was in a confidential mood. He was pacing to and fro in my room, with a nervous step and a feverish eye that were unusual to him. After all, I said to him, it was your most successful venture. Without making a direct reply, he said, there are some impenetrable secrets connected with that affair some obscure points that escape my comprehension. For instance, what caused their flight? Why did they not take advantage of the help I unconsciously gave them? It would have been so simple to say, the hundred millions were in the safe, they are no longer there because they have been stolen. 
They lost their nerve. Yes, that is it. They lost their nerve. On the other hand, it is true. What is true? Oh, nothing. What was the meaning of Lupin's reticence? It was quite obvious that he had not told me everything. There was something he was loath to tell. His conduct puzzled me. It must indeed be a very serious matter to cause such a man as Arsène Lupin even a momentary hesitation. I threw out a few questions at random. Have you seen them since? No. And have you never experienced the slightest degree of pity for those unfortunate people? I! he exclaimed with a start. His sudden excitement astonished me. Had I touched him on a sore spot? I continued. Of course. If you had not left them alone, they might have been able to face the danger, or at least made their escape with full pockets. What do you mean? he said indignantly. I suppose you have an idea that my soul should be filled with remorse? Call it remorse or regrets, anything you like. They are not worth it. Have you no regrets or remorse for having stolen their fortune? What fortune? The packages of bonds you took from their safe. Oh, I stole their bonds, did I? I depraved them of a portion of their wealth. Is that my crime? Ha, ah, my dear boy, you do not know the truth. You never imagined that those bonds were not worth the paper they were written on. Those bonds were false. They were counterfeit. Every one of them. Do you understand? They were counterfeit. I looked at him, astounded. Counterfeit? The four or five millions? Yes, counterfeit, he exclaimed in a fit of rage. Only so many scraps of paper. I couldn't raise a sou on the whole of them. And you ask me if I have any remorse? They are the ones who should have remorse and pity. They played me for a simpleton, and I fell into their trap. I was their latest victim, their most stupid goal. He was affected by genuine anger, the result of malice and wounded pride. He continued. From start to finish, I got the worst of it. Do you know the part I played in that affair? Or rather, the part they made me play? That of André Brawford. Yes, my boy, that is the truth, and I never suspected it. It was not until afterwards, on reading the papers, that the light finally dawned in my stupid brain. Whilst I was posing as his savior, as the gentleman who had risked his life to rescue Monsieur Humbert from the clutches of an assassin, they were passing me off as Brawford. Wasn't that splendid? That eccentric individual who had a room on the second floor, that barbarian that was exhibited only at a distance, was Brawford, and Brawford was I. Thanks to me and to the confidence that I inspired under the name of Brawford, they were able to borrow money from the bankers and other money-lenders. Ah, what an experience for a novice! And I swear to you that I shall profit by the lesson. He stopped, seized my arm and said to me in a tone of exasperation, My dear fellow, at this very moment, Gervaise Humbert owes me fifteen hundred francs. I could not refrain from laughter. His rage was so grotesque. He was making a mountain out of a molehill. In a moment he left himself and said, Yes, my boy, fifteen hundred francs. You must know that I had not received one sou of my promised salary. And more than that, she had borrowed from me the sum of fifteen hundred francs, all my youthful savings. 
and do you know why? To devote the money to charity. I'm giving you a straight story. She wanted it for some poor people she was assisting, unknown to her husband. And my hard-earned money was warmed out of me by that silly pretense. Isn't it amusing, eh? Arsène Lupin, done out of fifteen hundred francs by the fair lady from whom he stole four millions in counterfeit bonds. And what a vast amount of time and patience and cunning I expended to achieve that result. It was the first time in my life that I was played for a fool, and I frankly confess that I was fooled that time to the queen's taste. End of chapter 7